All right, who wants to read chapter 10, 1 through 20? And who wants to read chapter one, chapter 11, 1 through 28? Peter, you want to do that? Uh, you said 20? Chapter 11, 1 through 28. Sure. And who wants to read the verses 29 to 47? Thank you. All right. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firebrands and put fire in them. Then they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what Yahweh spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So Aaron kept silence. Then Moses called to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uzziah, and said to them, Come near, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came near and carried them still in their tunics and out to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his son Eliza and Ithamar, Do not uncover your head nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your relatives, the whole house of Israel, shall be over the burning which Yahweh has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointed oil of Yahweh is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Yahweh then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your son with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout the generations. And so as to separate between the holy and the profane, and the, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to instruct the sons of Israel in all the statutes which Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his remaining son, Elisa and Ithamar. Take the remaining grain offering from the offering of Yahweh by fire and eat it and leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. And you shall eat it in a holy place, because it is the statue for you, and the statue for your sons, taken out of the offering of Yahweh by fire. For thus I have been commanded. The rest of the wave, fire, or wave offering, however, is the die of the contribution offering you may eat in a clean place, you and your son and your daughters with you. For they have been given as a statue for you, and a statue for your sons taken out of sacrifice of the peace offering of the sons of Israel. The thigh contributed by raising up, and the breast offered by waving, they bring along, they shall bring along with the offering by the fire of portions of fat, to wave as a wave offering before Yahweh. 
So it shall be a perpetual statue for you and your sons and with you, just as Yahweh has commanded. But Moses searched carefully for the ghost of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's remaining son Elisha and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy. And he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before Yahweh. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you shall certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they brought near the sin offering and the burnt offering before Yahweh. Then things like this happened to me. So if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of Yahweh? So Moses heard this, and it was good in his sight. <clears throat> Yahweh spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, There are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof with us making split hoofs and chews the cud, among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you shall not eat of those among those which chew the cutter, among those which divide the hoof. The camel for... The hoof, hoof. Oh, the hoof, sorry. Hoof, hoof. 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 <clears throat> uh, the camel for through, though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. <clears throat> uh, likewise, the shapon for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, uh, it is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, uh, thus making a split hoof, uh, it does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, and you shall not touch their car car carcasses. Uh, they are unclean to you. These you may eat. Whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers does not have fins and scales among all the swarming life of the water. And among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you, and they shall be detestable to you. And you may not eat of their flesh and the, their carcasses, you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. These, moreover, you shall detest among the birds that they shall not be eaten. They are detestable, the eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the kite and the falcon in its kind, everywhere, raven in its kind and the ostrich and the owl, and the gull, and the hawk, and the, its kind, and the little owl, and the cormorant, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the stork, the heron, and its kind, and the hoopoe, uh, and the bats, <clears throat> all the swarming things that fly and walk on all four are detestable to you. Yet these you may eat among the, all the swarming things and that fly and that walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. 
These of them you may eat, the locusts of it, in its kind, and the devastating locusts in its kind, and the crickets in its kind, and the grasshopper in its kind, but all other swarming things that fly and that are four-footed are detestable to you. By these, moreover, you will become made... You will be made unclean. Whoever touches the, their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. And whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash their clothes and be unclean until evening. Concerning all the animals which divide the hoof, uh, but do not make a split hoof, or which do not chew cud, they are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. Also, whatever walks in on its paws among all the creatures that walk on all fours, are un unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening, and the one who picks up their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. Now these are to you the unclean among the swarming things which swarm on the earth, the mole and the mouse and the great lizard in its kinds, and the Gecko and the crocodile and the lizard and the sand reptile and the chameleon, chameleon. Um, these are to you uh, the unclean among all the small things. Whoever touches them when they are dead becomes unclean until evening. Also, anything on which one of them may fall when they are dead become unclean, including any wooden article or clothing or a skin or a sack, any article of which use is made. It shall be put in the water and be unclean until evening, then it becomes clean. As for any earth, earthenware vessel into which one of them may fit, fall, whatever is in it becomes unclean and you shall break the vessel. Any of the food which may be eaten, uh, on which water comes, shall become unclean, and any liquid which may be drunk in every vessel shall become unclean. Everything, moreover, on which part of their carcass may fall because became, becomes unclean, an oven or a stove shall be smashed, they are unclean, and shall continue as unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern collecting water shall be clean, though the one who touches their carcass shall be unclean. If a part of their carcass falls on any seed for sowing which is to be sown, it is clean. Though if water is put on the seed and a part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. Also, if one of the animal's thighs, which you have food, you have for food, the one who touches its carcass becomes becomes unclean until evening. He too who eats some of its carcass shall wash their clothes and be unclean until evening. And the one who picks up the its carcass shall wash his clothes, clothes and be unclean until evening. Now every swarming things that swarms on the earth is detestable not to be eaten whatever crawls on its belly and whatever walks on all fours with whatever has many feet in respect to every swarming things that swarms on the earth 
and shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Do not render yourself. Uh, do not render yourself selves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm. You shall not make yourself unclean with them, so that you become unclean. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy, and you shall not make yourself unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be seen. Well, just to kind of a little review of where we've been, we, uh, we, we uh, began with uh, chapters 1 through 7 and uh, we looked at uh, the different sacrifices, there were five sacrifices we, we studied. Uh, does anybody remember those five? Anybody want to give it give a shot at it? <laughs> can't look, you can't look though. What was, the, what was the first one? That's super easy. First one was the burnt offering, sure. Second one was the Peace. Sorry? Peace. That was the third one. No, that's the fifth one. Grain offering. And that was that was an offering of what? What does that symbolize? Thanksgiving, right? Uh, God has provided grain. You're giving it back to God and saying thank you for providing this our food. Man shall live, you know, man needs to live on bread to survive. Burnt offering symbolize what? Worship, wholehearted, devotion. wholehearted worship. Okay. The third offering was the peace offering, and that uh, that symbolized what? Fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. And, and what was what was unique about that offering? Was special. Everybody could eat it. Priest, uh, uh, you know, supplicant, worshiper. Then the fourth and fifth offerings were what? Sin offering. Sin offering and the guilt offering, right? And so we went through that, and, and then uh, we looked at uh, the ordination last time we met, last year, which we, we covered uh, chapter 8 and 9, and, and, and the, the ordination of the priests. And then in chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, in chapter 8 was the ordination of the priests, and then in chapter 9 was the first service, <coughs> official beginning of tabernacle worship. And what, what, significant hap what significant thing happened at the end of chapter 9? That didn't happen at the end of Exodus. What could Exodus? What what could Moses do at the end of Exodus? After all their obedience to like of to, to to obey every command of building the tabernacle, I mean they fulfilled every word of it, and then Moses wasn't what able to do what at the end of Exodus. Yeah, he wasn't able to enter into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. But at the at end of chapter 9, after sacrifices are established, after the priesthood is established, what happens at the end of chapter 9? 
Moses and Aaron. Moses is able and Aaron are very able to enter into the presence of God. So they, they give us a paradigm for salvation. This is how we return to Eden. This is how we get back to God. This is how the world get, gets back to God. Through a sacrifice, through a priest. What's interesting is I, I you know, about a month ago I bought a, a Jewish commentary. Really good. Really helpful uh, helpful information. And at the end of chapter 9, the commentator was like, we don't know why. We don't know the significance of why Moses and Aaron can enter into the presence of God. <laughs> and I was like, wow, these really smart scholars, these Jewish scholars, rabbis, they don't see it. They don't see that you need a sacrifice and a priest to enter into God's presence. Because if they did, they would see Christ a little bit more. And so it seems like they're so blinded to Christ, they were just blind to something really obvious that the text is makes so plain. So we have a sacrifice, we have a, a priest, and now in chapter 10, we're giving we're given instructions about the role of priests in the worship of Yahweh uh, through some negative examples and through some uh, explicit instruction. And uh, there's a threefold instruction in the in the middle of chapter 10, but sandwiched uh, 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 between uh, the, the kind of the outer 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 parts of that middle part of this, these instructions are the are the failure of Nadab and Abihu in verses one through seven, and the failure of Eleazar and Abi Eleazar and uh, not Eleazar, Eleazar and Ithamar, and their failure as well. So these failures bracket the middle part of the instruction. So the middle part of the instruction is probably what, kind of the emphasis here, and, and you have some some uh, object lessons, some admonitions of what not to do as a priest of Israel, and and, and, you, and we learn firsthand that this is what happens when you when you mess up. Um, so what happens in, in, in the beginning of chapter ten is Nadab and Abihu, the oldest sons of Aaron, as they lead this corporate worship for Israel. This is still on day one, right? This is a continuation of chapter 9. And uh, what do they do that's so wrong? What, what does verse 1 say? They offer strange fire to God. And um, we don't know exactly what this strange fire was. Maybe it was just a, the wrong kind of incense or... Uh, it doesn't give us uh, give us any details, but what we do know is at the end of verse at the end of verse one it says it wasn't what he had commanded them. What they offered is it, what, what, what wasn't what God had commanded them. Um, God commands us in His Word how to worship Him. We can't make up our own ways. We're not allowed to give strange fire on Sundays. Um, if we, if we don't see the principle of worship in Scripture, we're not allowed to do it. We cannot worship in a way that God prohibits in His Word. No strange fire on Sunday. The principle is still the same. Thousands of years later, uh, we can't offer strange fire. We cannot give God corporately what He has not commanded, verse 1. Um, what, what are some key verses that you know of about worship in the New Testament? Corporate worship. What are, what are some things that God says to us about what we can or cannot do on Sunday? Anything come to mind? Colossians 1. The thing praises. Yes. Uh, 
together. Right, right. So uh, key principle of worship is to be gathered together. Do not neglect the, the forsaking the assembly of the saints. We sing songs. What else? What else does scripture say about public worship? Any other verses? You know. We have to, you know, worship Christ alone, obviously. We can't worship multiple gods, different gods. The other verses, go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brothers, when you assemble... Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a translation. Let all things be done for edification. So everything has to have for the purpose of edification. You're always thinking, how does this edify the group? How does this edify the church? What are we seeking to accomplish? Um, can we perform a secular song? No, because that would be merely entertainment. If we can't find edification in what we do, we can't do it. Go to uh, chapter uh, 1, uh, 14, uh, uh, I'm sorry, chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 40. It says, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly, orderly manner. So public worship can't be wild, it can't be crazy, it can't be chaotic. That's to be orderly. There needs to be an order. An order of worship. What else? Any other things that we uh, can, can think about in, in um, public worship? Some other commands? Scripture on Sunday. Why? Why do? Why, why do? Why does it need to be public reading of Scripture? Is it because it's, we're just trying to be uh, uh, unnecessarily pious? No, it's commanded. First, uh, First Timothy four thirteen. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So there needs to be public reading of Scripture. There needs to be exhortation of, exhortation of Scripture. And there needs to be teaching of Scripture. Right? So there's uh, everything we do. We, there needs to be prayer, corporate prayer. 
Um, so there you have some principles there, and, 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 you, and you see these principles all the way in Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, strange fire. Strange fire, to offer strange fire to God in worship comes at a heavy price. Look at, look at verse 2. Uh, they offer strange fire, Nadab and Abihu do. And what happens? And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Um, this phrase, fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed. Where did you see that before? You saw that same phrase somewhere, somewhere before. Look at the last verse of chapter 9. Then fire came out before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering. Right? It's the very same offering. It's the very same phrase. And so what's the principle there? At the end of chapter 9, it was the right offering. It was, it was, it was an offering that God was pleased with. Fire came out and devoured it. Here, strange fire, same phrase, and what's the principle? You either offer the right sacrifice, or you become the sacrifice. Right? You have two options. This fire from heaven, uh, used 12 times in the Old Testament, 6 times in a beneficial way, 6 times uh, for judgment. Look at, uh, uh, listen to Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Uh, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So worship must be with reverence, it must be with awe, or else you don't, you don't offer the right sacrifice, you become the sacrifice. First Corinthians 10, when he, or is it up? 1 Corinthians 11. Do we, do we do the Lord's table? Part of worship, right? That's commanded. What happens if you drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? Verse 29 says, You eat and drink judgment to yourself. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, a number die. Right? You offer strange fire. In the Lord's table, you offer the wrong sacrifice, you become the sacrifice. That's the principle. And it still, it still stands today. Verse 3. Um, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be glorified. The way to God, the way to holy God is a holy way, especially among priests, among leaders. There's a higher accountability. These, these sons of the high priest should have known better than to mess with the holy God. I look at verse 4 and 5. Uh, Moses calls uh, Nadab and Abihu's cousins to carry the relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. He doesn't call his brothers, Eleazar and Ithamar. He doesn't ask Aaron to do it. And why is that? Why is that? Go to Leviticus 21. Look at some of the regulations. And the question is, well, well first I have the question, why, why don't you think God asks his brothers 
carry away the dead bodies. Look at 21 1's report. Anyone want to read that? Speak to the priests to summon Aaron and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean from the dead among his people. Okay, so there you, you go. You, you can't, uh, you're defiled ceremonially if you touch a dead person. Uh, and this is instruction is to the who? The priests, right? Mm -hmm. The sons of Aaron. Well, can you continue on? Um, except for his closest relatives his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother. Or his virgin sister, who is nearer to him because he has no, he has had no husband, for her he may make himself unclean. And he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. Yeah, so there's an exception clause, right? So priests normally can't handle dead bodies, but here, uh, because uh, Eliezer and Ithamar were brothers of Nadab and Abihu, they were allowed, but for some reason, God doesn't allow. We don't know why. He asked the cousins instead to carry their relatives out from the outside of the camp. It could have been because it was the first day of corporate worship, and uh, God was saying, as great as a, a thing as it is for your brother uh, to die, uh, as serious as that is, uh, the worship of Yahweh is more important. John Calvin said this, If we reflect how holy a thing God's worship is, the enormity, of, the enormity of the punishment will by no means offend us. Besides, it was necessary that their religion should be sanctified at its very commencement. For if God has suffered the sons of Aaron to transgress with impunity, they would have afterwards carelessly neglected the whole law. This, therefore, was the reason of such great severity that the priest should anxiously watch against all pro, uh, uh, profanation. Um, and there's that pattern, right? You have a pattern in Scripture uh, of, of when, when God institutes something new and big and important, that first day is really important, that there's an extra severity attached to the beginning of something. Do you remember a different example, another example where God institutes something new, uh, something big, and, and somebody dies on, in those beginning stages for, uh, for some sort of sin? Anybody else remember? A similar type of situation. This is the first day of the Levitical tabernacle worship. There was another situation that, that also where you saw the severity of God. A severity you don't really see today in the church. Is it the worship of the golden calves? Uh, yeah, that's another example, right? There was kind of the, the, the initial thing where uh, you know God sh showed some severity there. What else? Testament where there's these, there's like a couple of people who yeah. give money. Yeah, sure. they lied about what they gave, right? They said, here, I'm going to give this, and they didn't give it, and God killed them. That was the beginning stage of the church. So, and so God, to establish this kind of, this solid foundation, there's an extra severity there that you have to be mindful of. Um, you know, when you first got married, the first day, it was, it was serious, right? I mean, everything was was magnified. Uh, when I first got married, I, I really wanted my first year to be really, like, really special, you know? So I was like, I was extra, extra careful to be a great husband, right? After five years, 
you know, now I can kind of cruise. Okay, no <laughs> uh, but that's kind of the idea here. Um, they, they, so they, 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 they take the bodies out. Well, look what God says to Aaron and his sons of Eleazar and Ithamar. I mean, uh, think about it. Aaron's sons, have his two oldest sons have just died. Uh, Eleazar and Ithamar's two older brothers have just died. And look at what Moses says to them in verse 6. Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes. Right? This is an expression of mourning. He's saying, don't publicly mourn them so that you will not die. And that he will not become wrathful against all of the congregation. But your relatives, the whole house of, house of Israel, shall weep over the burning which Yahweh has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointed oil of Yahweh is upon you, so they did according to the word of Moses. What is God trying to emphasize to Aaron and his two sons right now by not allowing, by not allowing them to mourn? What is God trying to say? That something's even more important than the death of his son and his brothers, which is what? Worship. Corporate worship. They have to lead. This is the first day of worship. And even that's, that's more important. Let everybody else mourn, but not you. And you have to continue what you've been called to do. Worship of God is serious business. It is serious business. One thing I, 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 uh, I missed in verse 5, notice that it's, it's, it's this special kind of death. On um, verse 5, their tunics are still on them. So it was just Nadab and Abihu, their, their bodies are burned to death, but their tunics are, 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 are spared. So um, now we go to the role of the priest. So this is kind of the main part. Uh, they, there's three particular roles they've been called to carry out. Uh, verse 8, then uh, Yahweh spoke to Aaron saying, this is the first one, this is the first, uh, first commandment, first pers uh, prescription that he gives to Aaron and his sons and to the priesthood. And number 9 is, don't, you're not allowed to drink alcohol. Do not drink wine or strong drink. Neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meaning, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So there's this prohibition of alcohol. Why do you think it it follows right on the heels of Nadab and Abihu's death? Kind of a strange placement. They could have been drinking. They could have. They could be. Right, right. They could have been drinking. They could have been careless. That, that that's a that's a possible implication. And and one of the reasons why they need to abstain from alcohol because verse ten they need to be very careful about what's holy, what's profane, what's unclean, and what's clean. And and, and chapter eleven will expound upon what that really involves. That's really important. That division. That discrimination between what is clean, what is unclean, what is holy, what is normal. And then the last one, they're called to teach uh, the Israelites. They're trying to teach the Word of God. You don't, you don't normally think of priests having to teach the, 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 the people, but there you go. The, 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 the priests had a role in teaching the congregation of Israel. In verses 12 through 20, uh, God... Uh, Aaron, I'm sorry, Moses, gives them instructions particularly about the eating part. The eating part of the priest, the provision of the priest that God provides for them to eat from the offerings. 
uh, 12 through 15, he, he says that, uh, that the, the grain offering you can eat, uh, the breast of the wave offering, um, you need to eat it in the right place, the wave offering, verse 15. But then in 16 through 18, um, as he's given instruction about what, what, he, what they're to eat, uh, he, 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 look at verse 16, Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. And he said, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy. And he gave it to you. Bear away the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before Yahweh. So the, the, eating, of the, the eating of the offering has something to do, verse 17, with the bearing away of the guilt of the congregation. And part of the eating is connected with the atonement of, 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 the, of the sin. So if the blood had been smeared inside the tent, he gives us some uh, he gives some uh, some uh, instruction of how do you know when you can eat it, when, when can't you eat it? Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I had commanded. And so if you go to chapter six, go to chapter six, twenty-six. Uh, that talks about the sin offering and the and the role of the of the of the priest, and so here there's a sin offering in verse twenty six, chapter six. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in the holy place. So you're allowed to eat the sin offering, but if the blood has been brought inside, you can't eat it. And that and you'll see more of that in Leviticus sixteen on the Day of Atonement. Um, you'll see that when, once you take the blood of the sin offering inside, the rest of the animal needs to be burned, and the, and the priest cannot eat it. And, and so what does Aaron say? Verse 19. Verse 19 20. What, what is Aaron talking about in verse 19 and 20? You, you tell me. Aaron's excuse. He gives a he gives a reason why. He's, he, he gives a reason why they didn't eat the sin offering. And when Moses hears it, he says, "Okay, fine. I I, I understand. I'm, I'm going to give you a pass. Even though you were, you were supposed to eat the sin offering, um, because of your reason, I I, I understand." Well, well, Aaron says he didn't eat it. He didn't eat it. So they offer the sin offering, they, they offer the burnt offering, but they didn't eat the sin offering, and they were supposed to eat it. I, 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 was, I was going about it, verse 19, but then things like these happened to me. What happened to him? What happened to Aaron? What happened to Aaron? His son died. His son, his son's died. Do you, do you feel like eating when your kids die? Do you feel like having a feast? No, you, you no, you don't. And he said, he says to Moses, "Would that would would that have been good if we had eaten this and enjoyed this after my kids died?" And when Moses heard it, he said, "Okay, you know." And so 
God, he, his response is different here. With Nadab and Abihu, because of their attitude, because of their pride, um, it was a different type of response. And But Aaron, um, you see kind of the the, the, the level of uh, importance that God kind of puts on the ceremonies. Uh, there's a, there's, there, it's not as high as maybe some uh, moral laws. There's, there's exceptions to these ceremonial requirements. And so you see kind of the place, the weight of ceremonial laws compared to the moral laws of, of God's, uh, God's word. Now we move on to the laws of purity, 11, chapter 11 through 15. And if you see, if we look at that, that, that pyramid, uh, you see ritual purity, we move on to the next thing, the next pyramid, before we get to the, to the top of the pyramid. And in chapter 11, we look at food, food purity, clean or unclean. When, when, when soci, sociologists, when they uh, study ancient religions, they, they conclude that, that, that ancient religions uh, share certain features. And one of those shared features uh, was animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices. So all religions, all ancient religions, uh, had uh, uh, offered these animal sacrifices. But what was uh, unique among all, compared to the rest of, compared to the other religions in this time, was this distinction of clean and unclean animals. Like that's. Nowhere do you find this in any other kind of religion. Only Judaism, only the, the worship of Yahweh, where you, you have this type of, of category of clean and unclean. And so, uh, at the, remember in verse 10, back in chapter 10, he said, don't drink, don't, don't be intoxicated, but, because you need to learn how to separate what's clean and unclean, holy and profane. And, um, uh, and so chapter 11 expounds upon that. And uh, in chapters 11 through 15, uh, you, you have this whole category of what is unclean and, and what is clean. And so in light of what happened in chapter 10, and, and you see how serious God takes holiness, after seeing this warning shot of Nadab and, and Abihu dying before the altar, the question that arises is how how far does this thing go? How how holy do we have to be? And uh, the ceremonial cleanliness, these chapters on ceremonial cleanliness in chapters eleven through fifteen answers that question. It deals with the clean and unclean. How far does our holiness go? It talks about uh, uh, you know food and, and 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 giving childbirth and and. Uh, you know, skit your disease, like diseases and the sicknesses and the mold in your house and, and body fluids. It answers the question, how far does our holiness go? How far do we have to be holy? How, how To what degree do we have to be holy? And so all these things we'll see in, 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 in chapter 11 through 15 on these, these purity laws, are they're not inherently sinful. This is not a language of a right and wrong. Clean and unclean is not the same as right or wrong, it might symbolize that, but it isn't per se uh, a, a distinction of morally right or morally wrong things. It's not necessarily sinful to eat a certain kind of animal. And that's why the, Old, the New Testament lists all these New Testament dietary regulations. 
It's more about clean and unclean. And you have to think about these clean and unclean laws in the context of a relationship and nearness and, 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 and proximity. So let's say you have a spouse, you have a husband, you have a wife, maybe you have a roommate. Oh, let's say they haven't taken a shower in a year. Is that a sin? Is it a sin for your roommate not to take a shower in a year? Is it a sin? It's not a sin. It's not inherently a sin. Does it make you unclean? Absolutely. Is there relational distance, right, when you're unclean? You better believe it, you know? When I don't take a shower for like six hours, my wife is like, ooh, unclean. Unclean. Leave me. Don't sit on the bed. Don't lie on the bed. Your feet are dirty. Wash it. Right? It's not sin. But does it affect a relationship? Yes. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about these ceremonial, ceremonially clean and unclean laws. Or these we're dealing with the fact that God says, even in your preferences, even in things that are not necessarily right or wrong, you still need to honor me in these things. If you want to come close to me, if you want to come near to me, if you want to have if you want to have a relationship with me, you must be holy, even in your preferences. I mean, when you were dating, when you were dating, what happened? It's, it's about, what is it? Preferences. And those preferences make a difference. You show up to a date, dirty, unclean, smelly, it's not going to a second date. So, food is first on the list between these clean and unclean laws. Why food? Why food? Why do you think food is first on the list? Why is food on the list? That's what you need to survive. Yeah, that, that's what you do all the time, don't you? Yeah. Right. You eat and drink all the time. So this is dealing with the mundane issues of life. You have these options for food. It's not morally wrong to choose one or the other. But Israel needed to show the world that they were a kingdom of priests. They needed to point it. They needed to point things out to the world. They, they had to display their covenant status through actions that would speak louder than their words. That God is holy in every choice that they make, even in their food choices. And so Israel is not allowed to eat certain things like pigs. Why not? Bacon's pretty good. I love bacon. And the main reason was because in the ancient Near East, the pigs were a common animal. And, and this common animal was often associated with death, and disease and dirtiness. Culture still ate pig, but it had that reputation, right? And so they wanted to showcase this, this, this that their God was a God of life, a God of purity, and so they're going to proclaim that aspect of God's character in their abstention from pork, right? We have kind of food like that. That everybody kind of like frown, you know. I mean, Taco Bell. I mean, um, when I when I hang out with my Mexican friends, I don't actually, I don't necessarily, you know, tell tell them that I love Taco Bell, right? Um, we kind of understand. Uh, we understand this. And what's amazing about chapter eleven is is the age and time that it's given in. 
We worry about what? Too many calories, don't we? We count our calories. We look at the labels. Back then, do you think they counted their calories? No. They worried about too little calories. They didn't have Costco in ancient Israel. You didn't have McDonald's. Um, you need to eat whatever you can find. You, you don't have, you, you can't get picky with food. Because if you get picky with food, you die. And so sometimes you wonder why certain cultures eat like this. You're like, why would you eat that? It's so disgusting. I had a friend who lived in uh, Alaska, and he spent some time on the uh, Eskimo villages. And what they eat, and they love it, they eat whale uh, uh, rotting whale blubber on the coast. When whales go on the shore, the blubber rots, and they love it. Why would they love it? Because if they didn't eat it hundreds of years ago, they don't make it through the winter. You have to eat it. And so you have, chapter 11 is like, you can't eat this, you can't eat this, you can't eat this, you can't eat this. This is crazy. What they can't eat. I mean, I mean, having uh, too much to eat, counting your calories, that's like a recent phenomenon, right? Uh, just a few generations ago, in Korea, uh, my mother's generation, my grandfather, grandfather generation, they're 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 like five foot two, five foot three. They're small. My generation, what happened? Like six foot big? What happened? Calories, right? Um, ever go to a museum and you see some famous general, some you know? He's like four foot three. He looks like a little kid. Like what? What is this? So ch uh, chapter eleven is a is a very uh, a, a, a very uh, heavy demand for God's people. Now we look at uh, some of the clean. First, we look at the the the, the animals, the, the the permitted land animals. So you had there were uh, theological reasons why you couldn't eat pigs because they're of their reputation in society and religion. There, there are also, as we'll see a little bit there, there was some hygienic reason, and some people kind of disagree with that, but I think there, there's something to that. Not every animal can be explained by hygienic reasons, but, there, but it, clearly you, you see some of that here. And uh, here, so here in verses one, 1 through 8, these are the permitted land animals. He says to the sons of Israel, verse 2, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. This is what you're allowed to eat. If you don't know the land animals you're allowed to eat, verse 3, whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hooves, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. So two requirements that an animal has to have for them, for the Israelites, uh, for them to be allowed to eat that animal. A divided hoof, uh, an entire hoof, straight down the middle, and um, whatever, whatever animal chooses the cud. You know what, what chewing the cud means? Who knows what chewing the cud means? <clears throat> it's like a cow chewing on grass or something. It's more than that. It's like regurgitating your food to chew it again. Right. Why do some some, some animals do that? You have trouble digesting. Right, because our saliva, you know, when we when we eat, when we chew, we have saliva that gets softened and it goes down. Some animals don't have that in their saliva. And so for them to digest it, it has to go into one part of their stomach, it has to come out again, and they have to chew it again. Right? 
when we went to the zoo, we saw an orangutan, and we thought it was hummus at first. It wasn't hummus, because he ate it again, he spit it back out again. And it. I'm not exactly sure if that was cut or the, the, the monkey was being disgusting. But um, uh, the key thing with those land animals chewing cud is what? They're eating grain, right? Their diet is grain. It's not other animals. Because when you eat an animal, a predatory animal, you're eating what they eat. And there can be a problem with that. Uh, if, uh, and you'll see that a little bit later with the, with the birds. Um, you have permitted water creatures, 9 through 12. Uh, the, uh, well, oh, let's, let's go back to the clean hunting animals. So if one uh, divides the hoof, or, uh, but it doesn't chew the cud, you can't eat it. If you have one or not the other, that's not allowable. And he gives these specific animals to make it kind of clear uh, what animal is acceptable or not. Now the camel, if you look at its hoof, a uh, half of it is is sliced through the middle, but the bottom part isn't, so you can't have the animal. It chews the cud. A chiffon in verse five is like a little little uh, a little guinea uh, we call it a little guinea pig, I guess. And it chews cud. It doesn't divide the hoofs. Same as a rabbit, a pig, and you're not allowed to eat it. Look at verse 9 through 12. These are the permitted water creatures. So whatever has a fin and a scale, you can eat it. But if it doesn't have a fin or a scale, um, you have to avoid it. And there were some cultural reasons, cultural stigma, of why you couldn't eat those certain... Um, uh, certain uh, uh, fish. There are there are also health reasons. So you couldn't eat crab or lobster. You can't eat catfish because catfish has scales. And what what are, what are particular about those those uh, those sea creatures? What are they known for? Crabs and lobsters. Do you, do you know their fishes? Well, yeah, they're bottom feeders, right? Yeah. They eat all the dead things on the bottom of the water. And the fish in the top part of the water, they're in the cleanest part of the water. And that's why lobsters and crabs have a more distinct taste. There's a stronger taste. So anytime you eat an animal that eats another animal, it tastes, it has a stronger taste, right? Like, have you ever had a duck? A wild duck? Or a pheasant? They eat bugs, they eat animals, and it's a strong taste. You ever eat a chicken? It's not a strong one, because chickens only eat seeds, right? The grain, they don't eat other animals. And so that, that strong taste that you eat in a duck, there's a reason for that. And God says you can't have those things. And so you have some dietary uh, dietary reasons. Oh, look at the birds you can't eat. The bird, these are the birds you can't eat. Verse 13, eagle, vulture, buzzard, kite, falcon, raven, ostrich, owl, hawk, owl, vulture, heron, Hoopo, stork, bat. What, 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 are, what, what, kind of, what kind of birds are these? <coughs> Don't they eat, like, dead animals? They're, they're all predators. Yeah, they're all pet predators. Chicken's not on this list. And Jewish people, what do they love to eat? Chicken, right? Chicken soup, chicken matzo ball soup. Um, and so, 
there's some some dietary reasons. Not everything is in here. But look at verse 20 and 23. Uh, uh, you're allowed to eat certain insects. Verse 22, what are you allowed to eat? Locusts. Devastating locusts. Some of your translation says evolved locusts. That's kind of funny. Cricket, grasshoppers. So anything, any kind of bugs with plump abdomens, you can eat those things. And, and you might think that's kind of gross, but again, when you need to survive, you need to eat insects, right? Eat insects, right? You need to cook them, put salt, butter. I mean, after a while, they become normal and they taste good to you. I mean, uh, there's a reason why Koreans eat dog. Why do you think they eat dog? The Korean War, I mean, you need to survive, and there's dogs, you need to eat the dog, right? Um, and after a while, it starts tasting good. If you ever read about sieges, ancient sieges of uh, when the Romans uh, attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, you know, mothers ate their babies. You get so hungry, that's what happens. They eat their children. And the hunger will drive you to that. And God uh, says, no matter how hungry you get, you can't eat this stuff. You have to show the world you're different. You have to show the world you're holy, even in what you eat. And then, in verses uh, 24 to, to 40, uh, it's not just what you eat, it's, it's what you touch. And if you have all this category of what you can, what you can eat and and what, what, what animals you can touch, what you can't touch, and what's unclean, and what happens if it falls on a bull? Can you you have to wash the bull? If it falls on you, you have to you have to you're unclean until the rest of the day. So every detail of your life, and and uh, what's the deal with touching the animals? What's the deal with that? Why 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 is that here in chapter eleven? Because that falls in the category of what the mundane. In the first century, you're you're touching everything, like you're touching this animal, and, and kids are bringing in crickets, and kids are, and, and you're only touching that, and, and you have to be aware of that, that that your holiness extends to the very the very detailed, the little mundane things of your life. This is normal stuff. You're always touching things. Animals are always getting into your pots, falling into your pots, and you always have to think, no, I have to be holy in every part of my life. I have to be holy. That's how holy you got to be. Verse 41 through 47, it kind of finishes. And it's so, this is so interesting. I think this is so fascinating. 41, it talks about uh, bugs again. 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable. It shall not be eaten. So don't eat any bugs. You have some exception. You can eat locusts. John the Baptist ate those, right? You have crickets, grasshoppers. But everything else are unclean. Don't eat those bugs. And then this is so, so interesting, verses 44 and 45. For I am Yahweh your God, therefore set yourselves apart as holy and be holy, for I am holy. This is quoted in 1 Peter, right? Be holy as I am holy. And you should not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that moves on the earth. For I am Yahweh, I brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. I redeemed you, I bought you, so you have to be holy, because I am holy. You, I, I own you now, because I redeemed you from Egypt. So you have this huge command to be holy that Peter quotes, and the immediate context of the command is bugs. It's bugs. This is crazy. This is amazing. And even with, with bugs, you can be holy. That's how holy you have to be. With bugs. 
sense? God killed Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire. Yes. Handling the wrong bugs and animals, they join clean and offering strange fire. Deserves. Well, first kind of penalty, right? So there you go. Be holy, because God is holy. Why don't we why does why does why doesn't the church today have these same kind of uh, dietary laws? Why, why is that no longer in effect? Because national distinctions are no longer an issue now, right? It's, we're no longer a nation. We're a group of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, different nationalities. And so these, these, this national distinction is no longer there. And now we display this separation, this cleanness, through our hearts, through our actions, through our morals, and through our values, right? We must be distinct from the world. The church must be holy. And, and the church does the most for the world when the church is least like the world, says uh, commentary Mark, commentator Mark Rooker. We do most for the world when we're the least like the world. But you still have that imagery there. Go to 2 Corinthians 6, 6, 17. And uh, Paul, uh, Paul says, he's talking about um, relationships, marriages, partnerships. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. He says, um, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, what partnership of righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what, what, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, right? An unbeliever, an unbeliever can't get married because it's like, it's like having Christ be married to Satan. Um, light and darkness joining together. Verse 16, what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? For we are a sanctuary of the living God, right? We're the tabernacle, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You should be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So you have this imagery of separateness, clean, unclean, by the way we live our lives, right? By the choices that we make. And this is, this, is, this is a really powerful kind of admonition when you understand the rules of Leviticus, right? This, this daily preoccupation with the mundane activities of life, with food, with animals, with insects, bugs, birds. And, and, this, and, God, and God says, you know, when you, when, you, when you choose to marry somebody, the principle of holiness that you saw in Leviticus, it applies to the, to the, the spouse you choose to marry. Uh, that same principle. Well, you show yourself that you're a Christian, not like the world, by only to choose, choosing to marry other believers. 